The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you. Good morning. It's so good to see all of you today. And greetings to those who are listening remotely as well. Join me in a, just a brief prayer. Dear Father, I pray that your spirit and wisdom would guide and guard our hearts and minds today. Amen. What is life? Are our lives valuable, equally valuable? If not, how should we decide between two lives? What does God say about the value of a life? How does the Old Testament inform our views on life? Does that change in the New Testament? How do these things translate into everyday, real life? We as human beings have been wrestling with questions about life since God first breathed life into Adam. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Ah, so man is alive. He is a complex organism with a circulatory system and a nervous system, a brain. Millions of microscopic cells form this living being. And then the text takes life to the next level so quickly in verse 9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As we lead, read the text a little further, we realize that life is now complicated with good and evil, right and wrong, motivations, consciousness, beliefs. We are not just an organism of material cells. We have a soul, an inner being, a mysterious essence of life that is unique to human beings. It's not simply that we have emotions. Anyone who has ever had a pet knows that animals have emotions. So what is it? What is this life that humans have? And at what point do we have it? Does this life begin when we have all the genetic code in place? Does this life begin when we draw our first breath or somewhere in between? How do we know? We as human beings have that essence that is life because we were created by God in his image. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's read David's words in Psalm 139, starting at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written 
every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. By now, you must be anticipating what I'm actually going to speak about today. I want to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. If I were to ask you the name of a Supreme Court case off the top of your head, I bet many of you might come up with Roe v. Wade. Discussions around this landmark case are alive and well in our culture. The Roe v. Wade decision was handed down on January 22, 1973, and the United States has been unsettled with this decision ever since it happened 48 years ago. In my own career, I have been a labor and delivery nurse, as my husband said, for 24 years. And then recently, I have worked in a prenatal care clinic caring for women during pregnancy. I've also been a volunteer at Choice One. Choice One, as many of you know, is essentially a crisis pregnancy center. We support and love and care for women and girls who have become pregnant. Some of the clients there are in need of financial and emotional support, and some find themselves in a situation trying to make a decision about carrying and parenting or having an abortion. In all cases, we believe that women need the love of Jesus first and foremost in their lives. Right now, I'm training nurses to do ultrasound and counsel these young women. I am certified to do first and second trimester ultrasound. It is a powerful tool to help a young woman see her unborn baby and to know that she has life within her. Not just a glob of cells, but a functioning, active, beautiful little baby. So let's talk about abortion. I had a client at Choice One a few years ago who came in to see me for an ultrasound. She had made up her mind she wanted an abortion, and she just really wanted to see how far she was in her pregnancy, and our ultrasounds were free. So I got her up on the bed, we put her the ultrasound probe on her belly, and immediately came into view was this active little, wiggling little baby. She actually could see that picture right away. She could see with her own eyes that life that was inside of her. And we talked for a while with tears streaming down her face as she lay there on that bed. She made her decision not to have an abortion. The staff at the center actually moved into action at this point, and this is what Choice One does. Um, we gave her diapers and clothing. We threw her a baby shower. We gave her a parenting class. She was young. We helped her begin the idea of being a parent. And after the baby was born, I hadn't seen her for a long time. And after one night, uh, she came into the center for diapers, and I just happened to be there. She placed that baby in my arms, and she thanked me for showing her that baby. It was such a beautiful moment. I apologize. I believe that I have three types of listeners here with me today and out there in uh, video land. I believe um, that there maybe are more types, but let's do this one. This one is characterized by apathy. You go cold and lose interest the moment this subject comes up. Maybe you are just tired of the battles in the political arena, or you feel baffled by the arguments that are out there. In any event, you feel apathetic and disinterested. Blah, 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 
I'm not listening. Um, the second type of listener is um, those of you who are out there who have had experiences, maybe relationships with family and friends, and this has challenged your views. Maybe you were brought up to believe in the sanctity of human life, and you went with your church to, uh, with your family to church, and they taught you the pro-life position. Um, but in recent years, you've questioned this belief, and you now think that there may be room for a woman to decide to have an abortion, and you're sitting right there on the fence. And then the third type of listener is the one that I most identify with. Uh, you believe in the sanctity of human life. It's a firm belief. You're not wavering. You're just not sure how to talk about it with your family and friends, maybe especially with those who don't share your convictions. You'd feel a little tongue-tied if you were faced with someone who disagreed with you, or you weren't sure, like, how do you articulate your views, maybe even trying to persuade someone to think and believe as you do. If none of these describe you, please keep listening. I haven't decided to, I have included a little something for everyone, I think. My first goal is to actually engender enthusiasm. I'm aiming at you people who are disinterested and apathetic. Um, I often think that apathy is actually driven by a lack of knowledge or a discomfort with the fire in the political arena. You feel the heat and you just wanna back away. So let's first be clear what an abortion is. And to do that, you first need to understand how pregnancy is divided because abortion is different in the different three, in the different trimesters. The trimesters are the way we divide pregnancy. So the first trimester is weeks one through 12. The second trimester is weeks 13 through 26. And the third trimester is weeks 27 through 40. Now, Abortion. In the first trimester, when the baby is very small, the first several weeks of the first trimester, most of the time we can do a medical abortion where we give the mom some medication and that causes the baby just to be expelled from the uterus. It is involved with pain and loss of bleeding, but the baby just moves out uh, as a result of this medication. As the baby gets a little bigger towards the end of this first trimester and into the second trimester is definitely more complicated, and I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but you must understand what an abortion is. There, they, the abortionist will take a tube, a metal tube, and insert it into the cervix that goes up into the uterus, and then there is a metal clamp that the abortionist will use to reach through that tube and pull out whatever they can reach. So probably first is a leg, an arm. The baby is still living at this point. The heart is still beating. At some point after enough of the arms and legs are removed, then the baby does cease to live. And then finally they move the head, remove the head and that requires that forceps to be squishing the head enough to remove the baby. In the third trimester, it's even more complicated. Now this baby is really big, okay? It doesn't just slide through a tube. So they need to kill the baby first, and they do that by injecting the baby with a medication that causes that baby to die instantly, that causes the heart to stop. And then they place laminaria into the cervix, 
which causes it to soften and open so that in several days, they should be able to remove the baby again piece by piece. This is a dismemberment procedure. It's important that you realize what fetal development looks like throughout this time span. <clears throat> I just need to show you a few of the landmark steps. By the time a woman misses her first period, the baby is considered to be in, her four, in the fourth week of gestation, and the nervous system has already started to develop. At six weeks, the mouth, the nose, and the ears are formed, the intestines, the brain, they are developing, the circulatory system, and the heart are already formed. That means by the time many women find out that they are pregnant, the heart is already beating. At 10 weeks, little details are already happening, like fingernails and toenails and earlobes. At 13 weeks, the baby already has a fingerprint. The vast majority of abortions happen in these early weeks. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 1.2 million abortions are still being done every year in the United States. At 14 weeks, the kidneys are working and the baby can suck her thumb, his or her thumb. At 16 weeks, the senses are intact. They can see light. There's evidence of hearing at 19 weeks. At 20 weeks, they can swallow. By 22 weeks, between 22 and 24 weeks is considered the age of viability, which means that the baby can survive outside of the mother's womb with medical help. So let's look at some numbers. There have been more than 60 million abortions since the Roe v. Wade decision. Again, the Guttmacher Institute, which is the former research arm of Planned Parenthood, releases these statistics every year on abortion. Between weeks 13 to 15, that accounts for 6.2% of all abortions. And you say, oh, okay, that's pretty low. Do you know that that still means 57,000 babies are still being killed when they already have a fingerprint that is their own? Between weeks 16 to 20, we uh, see that there are still 3.8% of abortions happening. 35,000 babies are being killed in these weeks. 21 weeks and greater, you think, oh, 1.3%, that's nothing, right? 12,000 babies are being killed after they actually can live outside of the mother's womb. With that being said, though, abortion is actually declining in the U.S. According to the recent Marist poll, they found that America is definitely moving toward a pro-life ideology. 76% of Americans, including a majority who identify as pro-choice, want significant restrictions on abortion. 77% oppose or strongly oppose using tax dollars to support international abortion. 58% oppose using taxpayer dollars for abortions in the United States. So then, to my first group of apathetic listeners, when do you believe life actually begins? 
I believe it matters. I'd like to address this, my second and third group of listeners at this point. Those of you on the fence and those of you who feel a little tongue-tied, um, my second goal is actually to equip you for the exchange of ideas when you're talking to others. Pro-abortion advocates would have you believe that during the pregnancy, it is the woman's right to choose what happens to her body. They assert that the baby has no rights and that the human right to life doesn't exist until the mother decides it does. They don't want to talk about this new human as having any rights outside of the mother's choice. Let me ask you, how can her right to kill her baby change from one day to the next? Along these lines, if we believe that science is correct, that the baby is truly a human being, do we really want to say that the baby does not have a right to life just because of level of development or degree of dependence? We couldn't argue that the level of development decides human worth. Would you say a two-year-old could be killed just because she's not fully developed? Where then along that line of continuum should a, a human right begin? What arbitrary point can be assigned? Let's consider another argument related to degree of development. How can you say that the preborn child doesn't have human rights because the, in the womb the baby is simply dependent upon the mother for life? Degree of dependence cannot help us decide the value of a life or if it is human. Think for a minute. If an adult is in an accident and in a coma for two weeks, entirely dependent on nurses and physicians for every part of life, we could not claim a right to kill that person just because of dependence. All newborn babies are entirely dependent on an adult for survival. So level of development and degree of dependence cannot help us decide if a being is a human and if it has a right to live and not be killed. This new little being is a distinct being and uniquely human, uniquely different from all other human beings. From the moment of fertilization, when the egg and sperm come together, a zygote is formed. <clears throat> there is no egg and sperm left. It is uniquely human. No other member of the animal kingdom can come from this zygote. In fact, all of the genetic code, every piece of DNA code needed to form a complete human being is in the zygote from the moment of fertilization. Nothing external is ever added in the form of DNA or code for development. From this point on, we are just looking at stages of development. This little human is complete and from this point on develops as a self-directed organism, a human being. Its size does not determine its nature as a human. The science of embryology and fetal development is irrefutable, but science does not tell us how to decide right and wrong. Let me say that again. Science cannot tell us how to decide right and wrong. In his book, The Case for Life, Scott Klusendorf writes, and I quote from his book, is it wrong to torture toddlers for fun after beating your wife? Science can't help you with that question. Nor 
Can it tell us why the unborn human, or for that matter, any human, has value or a right to life? He goes on to say, secular critics deny this value and right to life, insisting that mere membership in the human species is not enough to confirm a right to life. Rather, they say, humans come to be at one point, but only become intrinsically valuable after they acquire some immediately exercisable capacity, usually self-awareness or sentience that embryos and fetuses lack. Thus, embryos and fetuses do not have a right to life that we are obliged to respect. If your right to life is based on your functional capacities rather than your nature, it's difficult to say why it would be wrong to kill you while you are in comatose or while still in infancy. In short, humans are equal in nature, not function. We see that science unequivocally defends the view that the human being begins at conception. There's no chance for a dog or a turtle or a chimpanzee to accidentally be born. It is, at its core, a human being every time. In, it is, it, in its nature, a human. Now, we all agree murder is wrong. We can defend that theologically from the Bible as well as culturally. It's the law of our land. Murder is the premeditated killing of one human being by another. Even in our judicial system, we find inconsistencies. In 2004, Scott Peterson killed his pregnant wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time. I remember this case. He was tried and convicted for double homicide in a state where late-term abortions were legal. So then does this become an argument for wantedness? How can the criteria of wantedness decide the difference between murder and legal abortion? Are we really supposed to believe that just because a baby is not wanted, we have the right to kill it? One troubling thing that is happening is that many defenders of a pro-choice position have begun to erode the traditionally Christian viewpoint for pro-life. If you've noticed, these past few arguments that I've given you are more philosophical in nature, not theological. Now, don't get me wrong. As Christians, I want you to have a firm theological view. I want you to believe that we are made in the image of God and, that, and see truth in David's words that we were known by God from in the womb. But in a secular world, theological arguments will fall on deaf ears. An even more disturbing trend is that Christians are finding a way around the Bible and are developing moral arguments for abortion. They use language like abortion protects life, and abortion is a mothering decision, sparing the baby from suffering in this world. If you do a Google search on any given day, and you type in, what does the Bible say about abortion? Let me warn you, the first several sites will probably be instructing Christians on a biblical argument for abortion. The Bible doesn't actually use the word abortion. 
Christians generally understand that the Bible as a whole upholds the sanctity of human life. Texts like the creation passage that we've read, Psalm 139, also Job 10, these all give us a good foundation for a pro-life viewpoint. Jeremiah 1, 5 to 6 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Bill Nye the science guy seems to think that because there are many fertilized eggs that never make it to the formation of a human zygote and implantation, that somehow that means we have the right to kill the ones that go on to be living human beings. God knows the ones that will actually become a person. According to Jeremiah 1, he plans it even before conception. Nadine Strawson, former president of the ACLU, argued in a debate at Wayne University that because some Christian pastors and Christian thought leaders have now decided that abortion is a, is a mother's choice, that that should somehow give us confidence that this is the right decision. You are all studying the Bible here at Cairn. Take what you are learning and be responsible with the whole text. Be careful when people want to excise one verse. You need to take it in context. Paul tells us that heresies will always be with us and that we must always, but we must always seek the truth. Nadine Strassen also used another argument that struck me as irrational. She suggested that because the courts made this decision in 1973 and have not changed their ruling, therefore it's defensible. This is a fallacy. We, all we have to do is remember Plessy versus Ferguson, a landmark Supreme Court decision in 1896 which promoted the, equal, the separate but equal doctrine regarding race and led to the horrific Jim Crow laws. It would not be until 1954 in Brown versus the Board of Education that Plessy versus Ferguson is overturned. 50 years later, it does not stand to reason that just because the court has held this view in the past that we must still hold it today. Abortion is legal in all states, but states still have the right to put limits on abortion. And this has been a season of extremes. Four states have passed heartbeat laws in 2019 at the same time that New York expanded its abortion rights to all three trimesters for any reason. In light of science and our developing understanding of human rights, I believe that we should overturn Roe v. Wade. But even if our nation does not do that, it is our responsibility to find the truth and stand on it in our own hearts and minds. But you say, what about the life of the mother? Why all this focus on the baby without acknowledging the mother's life or her health? The answer to this question is clear in God's word. Jesus tells us in John 15, 12, to love one another as I have loved you. Love and support is the most life-giving way for both the mother and the baby. 
At this point, I would actually like to encourage you to engage. Engage in this battle. Start to educate yourselves. I have a few examples, but this is not an exhaustive list. There are many more. But you might want to start with Students for Life, uh, led by Kristen Hawkins. All across today's campuses, uh, college campuses, this movement is afoot. And she has a podcast called Explicitly Pro-Life. I encourage you to listen. Um, you might also listen, uh, follow United, I'm sorry, Americans United for Life or the Sidewalk Advocates for Life. Pro-life messaging is growing increasingly more loving and compassionate. Most people who hold the value of life are realizing that we can't value life apart of the preborn child, apart from valuing that of the mother. So we want to come alongside of her and love her. Offering support and care for a woman facing an unplanned pregnancy can make all the difference, as I know from my experience at Choice One. So if you want to work outside of a Planned Parenthood, sign up for that Sidewalk Advocates for Life. Learn how to be that Sidewalk Counselor. You might also listen to podcasts like Life, Liberty, and Law if you want to get more engaged on the law side of things in our country. Follow the Charlotte Lozer Institute or the PCUC or liveaction.org uh, led by Lila Rose. Get a good book. If you really want to dig into what happened with the decision for Roe v. Wade, get uh, Clark Forsyth's book, Abuse of Discretion. Why don't you try reading Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life? Very clear arguments in there. Or watch the movie Unplanned, very powerful movie. I recommend every single one of you watch it. Or go to a march. Go, for the, go to the March for Life. There, well, during the pandemic, there's not too many happening in person, but there will be. Um, United, uh, United States has one down in Washington, D.C. Pennsylvania has one. States all around our region have them. Or volunteer at Choice One or another crisis pregnancy. Maybe someday you will find yourself in the public square, making an argument in the courts, or serving in state or national legislature. Wherever you find yourself, you need to know that the most defenseless human beings need all of us participating in the cause to win hearts and minds. Now, finally in closing, I know that a fourth category of listener might be in this audience. You are the ones that have been personally touched by abortion. You either know a friend or a family member who has had one, or maybe you yourself. I need to be clear, none of the messaging today is meant to condemn you. I believe in the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus Christ by his shed blood. His mercy and compassion is free to all who believe. If you are struggling with guilt post-abortion, there are wonderful counseling services available to you. And this is truly only the tip of the iceberg in the discussion on life. But even after this short introduction, it should be evident that the question of what is life is crucial on a personal level, a theological level, and a cultural level. I am available 
If anyone wants to talk about your own personal experiences or discuss the topic or the arguments more in depth, right up there is my email. Feel free to email me. I'm willing to set up a, a small discussion group, COVID-friendly, uh, or meet with you one-on-one. -on -one. But let's keep asking ourselves these important questions. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your word that guides us so carefully in the things that we know we need to think and believe. I pray that you would help us to hold fast to scripture and to the knowledge of your word in this time. I pray that you would guide us through this difficult season of COVID and that we would give you all the honor and glory in each step of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.